On today's episode of the SSPX podcast, we'll continue our apologetic series with two episodes on the papacy. In this episode, Father McGilvery will look at the concept of the papacy itself. We've already seen that Jesus set up the Catholic Church, but he left us with 12 apostles who would be the first bishops. Did he actually set up St. Peter as the most important of the apostles? And what was the reason for putting one fallible, hot-headed, uneducated man at the head of his divine church? You can find notes to all of these episodes at sspxpodcast.com slash apologetics, as well as all of our previous episodes. There as well, you'll find a link to help support this project. This is free to listen to as well as all of the resources we're posting, but if you can help with a one-time or a small monthly recurring donation, you'll be making sure that we can continue this work of producing good Catholic content on a regular basis. Now let's join Father William McGilvery for episode number 15 of our apologetic series. Father McGilvery, great to have you back on this series for Apologetics. How are you doing? Very well, thanks, Andrew. It's uh, been a little while, but it's great to be back. It is. It is great to have you, and you are speaking to us this time from Quebec. Is that right? That's correct. Yes, I've received a change of assignment. Great. We were just talking a little bit before we started recording that you had how long to start learning French before your actual assignment? Well, um, any French I, I know is basically what I studied over my summer vacation, and that was about three and a half weeks. So, excellent. Um, <laughs> it was a crash course and self guided as well. So, yeah, um, well, that's good. Well, I'm sure. Swim, I'm sure you, say. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you've got it pretty well now that now that you're immersed in it. So, uh, God bless you it's, for that. It's functional. <laughs> it's not beautiful, but it's functional. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, today, Father, we're going to be talking about the papacy. Last episode, we finished looking at the idea that our Lord founded the Catholic Church, that the Catholic Church is the church that Christ founded. Um, now we need to start taking our steps through, you know, our next steps. Um, and chief among, I think, one of the biggest issues that non-Catholics have with the Catholic faith is there's a guy in white in Rome who you listen to and what authority does he have? And that's the Pope. So where do we start when we look at this concept of the papacy and how important that is to the Catholic faith, Father? Great question. So I would answer kind of in, in two ways. First, I would just make the affirmation that um, these doctrines, which are a real problem for um, Protestants, um, if we're talking about the papacy for the Eastern Orthodox as well, um, they have plenty of um, proof, attestation on the part of the church fathers, um, and even in scripture itself. So um, it's not something that was invented centuries after the founding of the Catholic Church. Um, this is something which, which goes back as far as you want to look. Um, so that's the first thing I'd say. And, uh, you know, we will produce later on quotations from the early church fathers, which attests very beautifully to, to this truth. Um, but how would I approach the subject to start off? Well, rather than just, you know, pulling out the smoking gun and, and, and quoting, I don't know, Matthew 16, 18, or one of these other scripture passages that Catholics always go to, um, you know, th that is a smoking gun. That's a, a great passage to quote, and we will, we will go there eventually. But, um, I think it's, it's better first just to talk about, um, you know, imagine that we were approaching, 
um, this problem without any previous knowledge of scripture or tradition, um, and just knowing what we already know about the providence of God as, as it's been manifested in the, in the Old Testament, um, even in the natural law, um, what kind of government would we expect our Lord to give to his church? Um, you know, what, what would we expect and what would be the best thing, um, as far as we can tell? Um, and I think, you know, especially as modern people, we have this prejudice, um, against any kind of, uh, monarchical government. We, we have this idea that democracy is, is the best thing, the best form of government, um, or perhaps, you know, a, a democratic republic or something like that. Um, but that power comes from the people and the best form of government is one where, you know, you have vast assemblies coming together and deciding things by majority vote. Um, but is that the way that, that God has historically ruled his people? That's, that's a question that I would pose. Um, and so, um, I'm going to argue that, in fact, if we look attentively at the Old Testament for signs of how is the way that God has, has traditionally <laughs> chosen to govern his people, um, we see that he has a marked preference for the rule of one person. Um, whether we, you know, start with even the natural institution of the family, it's God creates Adam first, directly forming him out of the, the dust of the earth, and then takes Eve from his side uh, to indicate that, that Adam is the head of the family. Um, the family is, is a kind of monarchical institution where, where the father is the one um, who has full authority. Obviously, the, the, um, the um, wife and mother participates in the father's authority, but um, there is one head of the family. Um, we even look at the angels and we see that, um, you know, there is one head of the bad angels, certainly is, is Satan. We, we know him well. Um, but even among the good angels, there's one who is the leader. It's Michael who leads the other angels in the combat against Satan as we, as we read in the apocalypse. Um, but then, then we, we look at, um, the chosen people. And beginning with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, going on to Moses, Joshua, um, the judges, and eventually the kings of Israel, um, you know, Saul, David, and David's successors, it's always one man who is chosen to lead. Um, that's true in terms of the, um, the civil or political government, so to speak, but, but also true as regards the sacred uh, government in the Old Testament, if, if I can talk about it that way. Um, so the Aaronic uh, priesthood, uh, there is always one high priest, um, beginning with Aaron, and then whoever was the oldest of the um, descendants of Aaron um, would take over as high priest until his death. Um, and so we see this marked preference for uh, the rule of one, even later, later on in, in Old Testament history, the Maccabees, and it's always one at a time who is the leader, um, you know, Judas Maccabeus, and then it's Simon, then it's Jonathan, it's always one. Um, so why, if God has always ruled his people this way, why would he choose to change it? Um, that, that's an initial question that we need to pose to ourselves. And that might help us to clear away some of our prejudices about, uh, the different forms of government and just allow God to show what, what he has chosen, um, as it appears to us in the pages of sacred scripture and then the, the testimony of the church fathers. It is interesting when we look at, at this question of authority and, and like you said, father, it is difficult for. Uh, for us Americans, um, Europe and Canada, for Canadians, very, very similar. 
this idea that that authority does not rest with the people. That is not really uh, a thing up until we get to, you know, uh, basically, you know, Rousseau and, and, and all of this stuff that's happened, you know, about 400 years ago, 300 years ago. Um, there's definitely an, an idea that having one, having one guy in charge of any sort of institution is bad because what if he's bad? Absolutely. Well, yeah. Yeah. That can happen. But what if the entire government is bad? That would never happen at all, of course. <laughs> right. For sure. For sure. Um, it's true that, as Aristotle says, the corruption of the best is the worst. Um, so, so it is true that in a, a monarchy, especially a pure monarchy, um, if the monarch becomes corrupt, it, it becomes much more difficult to manage the situation, for sure. Um, Nevertheless, there's, there's God who, by his providence, is ready to guide the church and preserve her, um, even from the, um, let's say, the, the bad uh, decisions or, or perhaps corruption in, in the hierarchy, even at the highest levels. Um, and we know, too, um, we're going to argue, of course, that, that the Pope, um, as the successor of Peter, um, is the head of the church, that he has supreme authority. But we must always keep in mind um, that, that one thing is the authority itself, and the other is the use of it that, that, that the um, person in authority makes, for good or for evil, and that there always remains a, a right to resistance to the abuse of authority, as we will see eventually in, in the case of um, you know St. Saint, Saint Paul, who... Uh, at Antioch stands up and resists Peter to the face. Um, so if we assert a primacy for Peter and his successors, that doesn't exclude um, the right and sometimes even the duty of resistance to that monarchical authority if it's being abused. Um, I'd also mention as well that while I am going to argue that that, that our Lord instituted the um, you know church's hierarchy as a, a monarchy, um, it, it is nevertheless a tempered monarchy. Um, and this is a point that if you read, for example, St. Robert Bellarmine, his, uh, so he was a great Jesuit theologian of the 16th century and, and, um, you know, was very involved in, in dealing with all the different objections that the Protestants made against the Catholic Church. Um, and he wrote extensively on the papacy. Um, and he, before, before he begins to pull out proof texts like we're going to do, um, he, he begins with talking about the fittingness of the church being a monarchical government, but he makes the, um, the caveat that it's not a pure monarchy, it's it's a tempered monarchy. There are elements of aristocracy and even, he says, of democracy. Um, why? Mm. Because, well, first of all, um, in a pure monarchy, anyone else who has authority in the government would be um, in authority merely as the delegate or the representative of the monarch. Um, but um, we're going to argue that the bishops who succeed to the College of Apostles um, they, they don't, uh, govern their flock merely as a delegate or representative of the Pope, of the successor of Peter. They govern each of them, their flock in their own name as a representative of Christ. Um, hmm. so it's not a pure monarchy. There are elements of, of an aristocracy. And even, uh, St. Robert Bellarmine says of a democracy, um, because the, uh, the hierarchy is not perpetuated, um, by some kind of, you know, uh, dynastic succession where it's the sons uh, of the ruling class who automatically succeed. Um, rather, the um, the priests, uh, bishops, and future popes will be selected from among the people who are governed. Um, it's, you know, any baptized Catholic who can become priest, bishop, eventually pope, if, if he merits it and he's chosen. Um, so all that to say, um, you know, uh, 
I, I've already indicated that God has a certain preference for monarchy, but we're not talking about an absolute and untempered monarchy. Um, so uh, maybe I'll just, <laughs> I'll let you, uh, if you have any comments to make there, I'll let you jump in because I was talking for a while. <laughs> no, no, no. It, that was really interesting. Um, it reminds me of the episode we did with, with Father Tranquilo on, during the crisis series when we're talking about collegiality and how mm. Vatican II took collegiality and, and really kind of expanded this notion of collegiality. But there has always been an element of collegiality in the past where bishops do have the authority within their own diocese. We're seeing that sort of now really come to a head. Uh, canon 87 is one of the codes of canon law that is being really thrown about, especially with uh, Traditionis Custodes. You know, the Pope is saying that you need to um, – you know, not say the traditional Latin mass in this diocese. However, the bishop does have the authority within his own diocese for the good of the faithful to make certain decisions. And some bishops are doing that. Thanks be to God. It's a little bit of a sidebar there, but that mm. is, it's sort of in line with what you're saying that a bishop does have authority. And in some cases, can you even contradict if I'm, I don't know if that's too far to say contradict yes, the Pope well, in certain things yeah. or... Mm-mm. Yes, I think uh, I think probably to go directly against the the manifest will of the Pope in a particular matter that would require that the Pope be commanding something which is unreasonable or opposed to um, you know divine law or to you know th- there would have to be in other words a, a particular reason for doing that because it is true that the Pope uh, super- uh, possesses a universal and supreme and immediate jurisdiction over all of the faithful. Um, so. Uh, um, yes, I, I don't want to get too much into that though, Fair enough. just yet, okay. because it could be, it's, it's an interesting point that you raised, but it could get us sidetracked. Um, okay. we'll leave that for another episode. Maybe we'll, maybe you and I'll come back and, and we'll chat, chat about that one some more. Okay. Yeah. But maybe, maybe, okay. If I, if I can suggest a, maybe a, a direction to go in here. Um, yeah. I, I made some general points already, but I think we have to backtrack a little bit because, um, you know, I'm already supposing that the church has a definite government, a hierarchy. Um, and a lot of those who, who might be listening to this apologetic series, if they're from a Protestant background or, or something else, they might not even be willing to grant that point. So I think okay. um, it might be good to to begin just by insisting on the fact that the, the church was given by our Lord Jesus Christ a, a hierarchical um, a form of government. And then and then to show you know exactly what kind of hierarchy it, it is. Um, and you know, we can, we can already infer from the fact that the church is founded by Christ as a true society, um, not just kind of an, uh, assembly of individuals floating in space like atoms, but, um, a, a true society with, with unity, um, there must be an efficient cause of unity in any society. Um, what is it that directs the activity of, of, of the members and coordinates it for the good of, of society as a whole, um, for the end for which that society exists? Um, it's authority that does that. Um, and authority is always possessed by someone or some group of people. Um, and so if the church is a true society, then the church must have um, an authority, a, a governing body, um, and which, which ensures the continuance, uh, continuance, the, the, until the end of time of, uh, the mission of Christ. Um, the, the very purpose for the existence of the church is to continue the 
threefold mission of Christ to teach, to govern, and to sanctify uh, the members of the church and, and thus to prepare them for eternal life. Um, I guess as an aside, I would mention that the, the teaching power is it's not only geared at the uh, or intended for the members of the church, but for the whole world, which is supposed to be taught and to enter the church. And then the church governs and sanctifies those who have entered her and become her members. But anyways, this is the purpose of the church. Um, uh, Christ, our Lord, uh, began this mission on earth, but then he entrusted the continuance, the prolongation of this mission to uh, the church and particularly to the members of the hierarchy who would be able to govern his name. Um, and we see this in what's often called the Great Commission, um, which our Lord gave to his apostles just before his ascension. Um, he says, going therefore teach ye all nations, which refers to the power of teaching, um, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Um, so that's the, the power of sanctifying, which begins with the sacrament of baptism. Um, and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, which we would interpret as the power of governing, um, because you're, you're teaching people to observe commandments. Um, and then he promises them, behold, I'm with you all days, even to the consummation of the world. So there, there's a communication of our Lord's power, his threefold mission, to particular individuals, the apostles who are going to go out in the world and, and, and do this. Um, and so we can already see, um, not only are there certain people in the church possessing, you know, certain powers given to them by Christ, but by that very fact, um, that tells us that the church is not a democracy, um, in the sense that the, the, the rulers, the leaders are elected by popular vote, um, because the people to whom Christ entrusts these powers, um, they are chosen by him. They are his apostles. The word apostle meaning sent. Um, so they're not, uh, they're not elected by the people. They are sent by Christ. Um, as he himself says to them, you know, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. So already he establishes a kind of ruling, uh, governing body, if you will, the apostles, um, uh, who, who are chosen directly by him. And so it's not democratic. It's not some kind of universal priesthood where everyone is is on the same level, on a par. You know, so to take devil's advocate here, I could say, all right, fair. That's there in Scripture, Father. I agree. Christ did that. He set these apostles up. But um, that doesn't mean that the apostles get to make more apostles. Where in Scripture is this idea that that there get to be quote unquote descendants of the original apostles? Yeah, a great idea or a great question. I'm sorry. Um, it is also a great idea too. But yeah. um, <laughs> uh, anyways, um, so we this this is first of all um, something that we see in in especially the pastoral epistles of Saint Paul. Um, who writes to Timothy and to Titus, who are men that he, as an apostle, has chosen um, to take part in his ministry, uh, to help him. Um, and it's clear that they have been distinguished from the rest of believers by the reception of certain spiritual powers, um, which are communicated through um, a certain ceremony, which involves the imposition of hands. Um, so St. Paul writes to Timothy, Neglect not the grace that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with imposition of the hands of the priesthood. Um, okay, so so it's clear that there is a certain spiritual power which has been transmitted. Um, and, um, you know, it, it's St. Paul gives to Timothy himself instructions for the, the choice of 
not only more deacons, but also more bishops in the church. Um, and he warns him, impose not hands lightly upon any man, um, neither be partaker of other men's sins, um, which would be the case if he imprudently ordains to the priesthood or the episcopate men who are not worthy. Um, we see the same thing as well with, with Titus, who's, uh, so, so Timothy seems to have been appointed the bishop of Ephesus. Titus, on the other hand, is, is left in Crete. Um, and, and St. Paul, um, instructs him, for this cause I left thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting and shouldest ordain priests in every city as I also appointed thee. So, so St. Paul is giving to these men, Timothy, Titus, um, instructions. He gives them criteria. He says, you choose the people who are going to be the priests or the bishops in, in these different cities. Um, so there, there we see it's not democratic. It's, it's St. Paul choosing his co uh, collaborators and then they themselves in turn are instructed to choose others. From very early on in the church, we have these, you know, the, various churches set up properly speaking by the canonical term church churches being set up we have the church of antioch we have the church of jerusalem we have the church of rome um, and all of these other churches that are set up by these apostles um, so it would seem in a certain sense that maybe the governance of the church could be an aristocracy or at least that is a claim that some people would make that it's not just one person at, at the head of it there's a group there's a cast of of 12 um, apostles at the very beginning who are all equals to each other. Um, what would you say to that, Father? Well, that's certainly touching the heart of our question. Um, I think if, if we're granting that um, the church is not a democracy, that um, there are powers that are passed on from the apostles down to their successors, that already leaves out, you know, certainly the, the vast majority of Protestant denominations. But the, the Eastern Orthodox would certainly be in agreement with us until this point. Um, and this is where we begin to diverge with them, because they view the church as having a kind of uh, aristocratic government, you might say, where there are what they call autocephalous uh, churches. Um, autocephalous just is, is Greek for uh, having its own head. Um, so each of these churches, and there's something like uh, 10 or 15 of them in, in, uh, that are loosely associated together and referred to as the Eastern Orthodox, um, each one of them is independent of the others in terms of teaching government um, so uh, many of them are headed by a patriarch, which is a kind of, you know, super bishop, a bishop who has supervision over the, the other local bishops. But each of these patriarchs or heads of the autocephalous churches is uh, on a par with the others. So this would basically be the thesis of the Eastern Orthodox that, that Christ established a church, which is a pure aristocracy, um, where each of the, the, the heads of the various churches succeeds to an apostle or to the college of apostles, but they're all on an equal level. So, um, that's precisely the, the objection that we're going to take on now. Um, if we begin with the apostles themselves, um, Christ would have not made a very prudent choice, I think, in selecting 12 apostles. Um, if his intention was for the College of Apostles to rule um, collegially by a kind of majority vote, because if you want the supreme governing body in your church um, to rule by majority vote, why would you establish an even number of constituents of that body? You know, you can easily mm. sp split the, the College of Apostles into six and six, and then you're at a stalemate, you're, you're tied. 
Um, <laughs> so that already is a kind of negative indication that, that probably Christ didn't intend it to be that way. But um, let's go ahead and look at the, the, the College of Apostles. Um, as we see in sacred scripture, um, and see um, what it is that um, uh, see see whether whether they all are regarded equally by Christ or whether He gives special preference to one or another. Um, and in fact, um, we see that there are three among the apostles who are um, singled out by Christ that are given special preference. So already we might suspect maybe they're not all on an absolute equality. Um, of course, I'm referring to uh, Peter, James, and, and John. Um, there's quite a number of um, instances where they are taken apart from the other, other apostles and permitted by our Lord to be witness to things that the others are not allowed to witness. Um, so, for example, um, uh, it's only the three of them who are admitted to see the resurrection of the daughter of, of Jairus, which our Lord works. Jairus is the um, leader of the synagogue, and, and he calls Christ to come raise his daughter from the dead. Um, and our Lord only admits those three with him. Um, likewise, only they are admitted to the transfiguration on the Mount of, uh, on Mount Tabor. Um, and only those three are allowed to go farther into the Garden of Olives and be close to our Lord in his agony. Um, so we see already that, that not all the apostles are on exactly the same level. Um, we might add as well that St. Andrew sometimes is, is included in this inner circle. Um, yes. you know, but, uh, there you go, Andrew. <laughs> um, for example, when, you know, the four of them go and question our Lord, um, about the, the end of the world. And so it's just that, that select group. They're also the only four to see the, the healing of, um, uh, Simon Peter's mother-in-law. So, um, but, but so that's just a preliminary point. Um, however, um, James and John, it doesn't look like they're going to be made, um, like they're going to be advanced beyond Peter. If we're just considering this inner circle, um, we even have uh, in them some signs of, of rashness and ambition. For ex ambition, for example, they want to uh, command fire to come down from heaven and consume the Samaritans who refuse to give hospitality to our Lord. Um, and they also try to obtain from our Lord the first two places in his kingdom, um, and saying, you know, when you come in your kingdom, please uh, promise us that we'll be on your right and left hand. Um, and, and he rebukes them for their pride. And he says, to sit on my right hand or on my left is not mine to give to you, but to them for whom it is prepared, as if to insinuate, well, sorry, but this is not for you. It's for those for whom it's prepared. And um, so, so it seems to be insinuating that, that, that someone else is going to take that place. Um, but um, really, uh, it becomes clear that um, it's, not, it's not these three who are the head. It's really one, and it's Peter. Um, so we're going to look at, at a lot of evidence for um, Christ singling out Peter and promoting him to a place which is you know, substantially above that of all the other apostles. Right. So we have, we have in scripture, you're saying definite, uh, definite proof, or at least some definite, um, circumstantial proof that, that our Lord is singling Peter out and that he is going to be the first among equals as the Eastern Orthodox would say, or at least he has the primacy of authority. Well, actually, okay. <laughs> those two, um, or oh, they're very those different two expressions. Things, 
Yeah, so first among equals, okay. that would be a primacy of honor, which the Orthodox, uh, many of them are willing to concede that maybe the Pope has historically, or St. Peter had historically, a primacy of honor. Um, but we're going to argue for actually a primacy of jurisdiction, meaning that he uh-huh. would have authority over the other apostles. So okay. uh, it's an important distinction, which we'll get to in time. Um, maybe we can just move forward with... Um, showing the reasons why we think that Peter was set above the other apostles. And as we list them, we will come across some that indicate very clearly that it's not simply a primacy of honor. In fact, you might say um, that, you know, James and John, and to some extent, Andrew, were given a certain primacy of honor over the other apostles, and that they were uh, given special places, allowed to see things that the others didn't see. Um, but there's not any solid evidence in Scripture for uh, their having a primacy of jurisdiction or governing authority over the other apostles. There's no no proof of that. Whereas for Peter, it will become clear that 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 there is very very strong proof of that. Um, but but why don't we j- just begin by showing how Peter is uh, singled out um, from among the other apostles in a way that even James and John are not. Um, and, and I think that we see this, first of all, from the fact that, uh, okay, yes, James and John, um, they receive certain nicknames, like uh, Sons of Thunder, our Lord calls them, and also John will refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. But But it's only Peter who receives a new name. Um, and this is striking. Um, in fact, we read in the very first chapter of the Gospel of St. John um, that, you know, Andrew, who's Peter's brother, um, he's, it's actually Andrew who's the first one to um, meet our Lord, to start following him among the 12 uh, disciples. Andrew, I think, and, and John as well was, was there. Um, so it's Andrew who finds Peter and says to him, look, we found the Messiah, the Christ. Um, and he brings Peter to Jesus. And Jesus, as soon as he looks on Peter, he says, well, well keep in mind, first of all, it was Simon at the time, Simon, son of, of Jonah. Um, but Peter looks on him and says, thou art Simon, the son of Jonah, thou shalt be called uh, Kephas, which is interpreted Peter. Um, so, so our Lord gives to Peter his new name from the very beginning. Um, and that's something that he doesn't give to anyone else. None of the other apostles receives a new name. Um, and the name change is significant. Um, the full significance will be explained later on in Matthew 16, 18. Um, but uh, suffice it to say for now that um, every time that God gives uh, directly a new name to somebody, uh, this is a, a sign that they have a special providential role in the history of salvation. Um, as for example, Abram was then named by God, Abraham, meaning father of many nations. And, um, Jacob became, uh, received the, the name of Israel strong against God, um, after he had wrestled with the angel. Um, and also, um, I'm Ose is his name. I, I was about to forget it, but, uh, Ose, um, is the one that we refer to as Joshua, but Joshua was not his original name. Um, it was Moses who presumably on God's instructions, um, gave Ose the name of Joshua, meaning savior, um, because it was Joshua who would succeed Moses in leading the, uh, chosen people into the promised land. Um, so each time that there's a new name given to someone, um, by God's own appointment, his own choice, that indicates a special role. Uh, is there any is there any significance, Father, to the fact that that our Lord would sometimes refer to Peter as first? I mean, was that done uh, purposely by the evangelists when they're telling the story of the Gospels? 
Right. So that brings up another another interesting point, which is that um, yes, oftentimes our Lord um, uh, approaches Peter first before the other apostles. As for instance, when he's washing the feet of the apostles at the Last Supper, it's to Peter that he goes first. Um, even more importantly, after his resurrection, um, he will appear to Peter before any of the other apostles. Um, but we also see uh, in the way that the evangelists um, narrate things and, and talk about the apostles, they always take great care to give um, a primacy or first place to Peter. Um, as, for example, when they are listing the 12 apostles that Jesus chose, um, we see St. Matthew, for example, in his list of apostles, he says, The names of the twelve apostles are as follows. First, Simon, surnamed Peter. Then Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, etc. Um, he lists um, Peter before Andrew, even though Andrew was you know, prior to Peter chronologically in terms of who, who became a disciple first. Um, and if we compare that to the other lists of apostles uh, given by the other evangelists, we find that the order changes. Others, for example, put um, James and John before Andrew. Sorry, Andrew. Um, so the, the order of the other apostles can change, um, but Peter's always first, invariably. Um, yeah. And even we see that often um, only Peter's name is mentioned distinctly while all the other apostles are lumped together in, in a description of what's going on. Um, so, for example, in Mark one thirty six, um, Simon and they that were with him followed after Jesus. So all the other apostles who, who happen to be there, they're just they that were with him, with Simon, Simon Peter. Um, mm. Or again, uh, after Christ's resurrection, the angel tells the holy women, um, go tell his disciples and Peter that he, meaning Jesus, goeth before you into Galilee. Um, and then again in the Acts of the Apostles, um, for example, in, in Acts chap chapter 5, uh, verse 29, we see Peter and the apostles answering said, we ought to obey God rather than men, etc. Um, so so not only is Peter listed first, but often he is the only one who is listed distinctly. And, uh, you know, what he does, he does on behalf of the whole college of apostles um, as when he answers the leaders of the synagogue in that in that episode in the Acts of the Apostles. Um, and and, and mm. finally, if we just look at the frequency with which Peter's name comes up in the Gospels in the Acts of the Apostles, he's the first by far. Um, now, I didn't I didn't do the count myself personally. Um, I'm taking this from a, a book by Father William Most, um, Catholic Apologetics. He he counted or someone counted all the times that Peter's name occurs in the Gospels, and it's 171 times that Peter's name is mentioned. Um, presumably that includes Simon as well. We're talking about that individual, Simon Peter. Um, whereas the closest to him is St. John, the apostle, with 46 mentions. So wow. St. Peter's in first place with 171. Second place is St. John with 46. Huge difference. Wow. Yeah. About, about triple the amount. That's that's uh, That's got to be for a reason, you would think. You would think so, yes, yes. Yeah, no, we're not conspiracy theorists, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, right. I mean, if we want to continue with our conspiracy here, I think this is a good conspiracy. There's there's foundation. <laughs> okay. Um, so once again, the, in the line of Peter single or, or Jesus singling Peter out, uh, I mentioned already him, you know, getting his feet washed first and all this. Um, but one very interesting episode is is where. Um, 
So Peter is approached by, you know, whoever are, are the representatives of the government or, or the Jewish authorities who are asking for the temple tax. Um, and they say, does your master pay the tax or not? And, and Peter goes to Jesus and says, what are we going to do? You know, we're poor. We don't have money or, or whatever. Um, and, and Jesus instructs Peter to um, go you know, catch a fish and open it up and you'll find in the mouth um, enough money uh, for you to give to pay the temple pack tax for me and for you. Um, so so our Lord associates Peter with himself and pays the temple tax for the two of them. Mm. Um, and even, um, you know, oftentimes when there are things that our Lord does say to other apostles, to all of all of the apostles together, he says it also to Peter specifically. Um, for example, you know, we're, we're all familiar with the episode where our Lord says to the first apostles that he finds, you know, uh, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Um, but our Lord also says that specifically to St. Peter, um, where it's the episode where our Lord is preaching in whose boat? Well, it's in Peter's boat. Um, it's always Peter's boat. Um, and then he tells Peter, pull out into the deep and, you know, let down your, your nets. And um, so other apostles are there, but it's Peter's boat. Peter is the one to whom our Lord is giving the orders. And then there's this miraculous catch of fish. And, um, you know, Peter, this is where Peter feels astonished and unworthy to be in our Lord's presence. He says, depart from me, Lord. I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm an unworthy man. And, and Jesus says, you know, um, it's it's okay uh stay with me um and from now on uh so he says to him fear not from henceforth thou and this is this is singular you peter uh thou shalt catch men um and there, it's important to know that there were other apostles there at the time um, but our lord is singling peter out and, and giving him this title of of the fisher of men uh, in a way which is special to him um, so it, it belongs in some manner to all the apostles, but especially to Peter. Um, and we can say the same thing of the power of binding and loosing. Our Lord gives it first to Peter alone in Matthew 16, 18. And then later, two chapters later in the Gospel of St. Matthew, he gives it to all the apostles. Um, but but that's not to say that, um, you know, they're raised to inequality with Peter. Rather, what we would naturally infer from that is that um, Peter has this power in a special or preeminent way, and then the other apostles have it, you know, perhaps by participation. Um, are there other places where our Lord is? I mean, this this seems to show a preference for Peter. Again, just to be as perfectly uh, fair to the opposing side, so to speak, as we can. This seems to show a preference to it. But are there times where our Lord will put uh, Peter ahead of the other apostles in terms of saying here, uh, you know, do this for for them um, or be more in power than than they are. I guess I'm asking if, yeah. if if he gives that sort of authority more specifically. Great question. Uh, so far, what we have seen, you know, might indicate as we've discussed a primacy of honor. It's, we haven't yet seen any solid proof for a primacy of jurisdiction, um, but um, we're about to see that. So. I think the first the first quotation that we can point out um, indicates that Peter has a special rule vis-a-vis -vis the other apostles um, because, uh, well, this, this happens just before our Lord's passion. Um, our Lord singles out Peter to give him a warning to predict his, his weakness and his coming fall, but also he gives him a special role. Um, so he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. 
Um, but then he adds, uh, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And thou being once converted, confirm thy brethren. Mm. Um, so you see that um, our Lord prays for Peter in particular to have an unfailing faith. And um, Peter is the one who is supposed to confirm his brethren, um, which would be obviously the other apostles. And in fact, um, this is something that we see um, after our Lord's resurrection. Uh, our Lord does appear first to the holy women, it's true. Um, but of all the apostles, he appears first to Peter. And we see um, how Peter is able effectively to confirm the other apostles in, in their faith in Christ's resurrection. Because when the holy women came back and told the apostles the tomb is empty and we saw the risen Christ, they think that the women are just, you know, they're, they're hysterical, they're imagining, hallucinating something. Um, uh, but uh, then we see that um, when Peter sees Christ and he tells the other apostles, they all believe him. Um, we see this in the Gospel of St. Luke, where um, St. Luke narrates how um, our Lord appears uh, to two disciples who are on the way to Ephesus, uh, or sorry, I'm sorry, to, um, to a mouse. Um, and, and then these apostles, after seeing Christ, they, they hasten back to Jerusalem to tell um, the rest of the of our Lord's disciples to tell the apostles that Christ is risen. But when they get there, they find um, everyone already believes that Christ is risen, and they say, you know, the Lord has truly risen, and He has a appeared to to, uh, to Cephas to Peter. Um, hmm. So we see the efficacy of Peter's testimony, um, and even Saint Paul when he is listing in First Corinthians chapter fifteen. Um, all the people to whom our Lord appeared, um, he doesn't list the holy women. Um, he begins with Peter. Um, so we see we see this rule that Peter has. Uh, he's the one that the other apostles listen to. They're ready to believe him. Oh. Okay. So that sort of starts to make some sense then in terms of, of juridical value or or you know some some more tangible proofs of, of primacy there. Um, but our Lord doesn't just leave us some of these anecdotes. He does give some specific directions, some specific phrasing to Peter and him alone that he doesn't give to any of the other apostles, right? Absolutely. Um, and this will be related to uh, Peter's firmness in the faith, but it's going to go beyond uh, merely a recognition um, of, of Peter's faith or, you know, um, a kind of general mandate to make sure you're out, you, you keep an eye out for your brethren and make sure that they, they don't uh, fall away from the faith. It's, it's going to be more than that. Um, of course, what we're referring to here is uh, Matthew 16, 18, which is... Um, you know, the, the quotation that Catholics always pull out um, in their debates against Protestants and, and the Eastern Orthodox. Um, and so it's it's not something that we can ignore. It, it's extremely important. Um, and so we're going to discuss that. Maybe I'll just start by reading the quotation. Um, and then uh, before explaining it, we'll talk a little bit about, um, you know, textual criticism and uh, how sure are we that this is an authentic passage and all that. All right, so Father, you were just about ready to give a quote, uh, but we had some internet connection difficulties, so you switched rooms real quick. Uh, so that's why there's the change in background, and the sound quality is, might be a little bit different, but 
thanks for doing all that for us. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, but go ahead with the quote you were about to give, Father. Okay. Well, I hope I can remember it myself. Uh, I think there was something about uh, <laughs> Matthew sixteen eighteen, right? That's where we were? Yes. Um, that's oh, where yeah. We were. Okay. So, right. Um, and that goes like this. So, um, maybe I'll just explain the background first. So, there's a test of the disciples' faith. Um, Peter's asking the disciples, the apostles, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Jesus is asking the apostles, uh, who do men say that I am? Um, and, uh, the apostles, they give different answers. They're, they're just reporting different opinions that are out there. You know, I don't know. Um, he's, uh, people say that you are John the Baptist who's risen from the dead after being executed by Herod or, or whatever it is. Um, and, and so they're all, obviously wrong these these human opinions that the various apostles are bringing forward and then our lord turns on them and says and you who do you say that i am um mm-hmm. so this is this is kind of a big challenge um and peter steps into the breach um before i say what what peter says let me just say that this is not not even the first time this has happened um there's another very famous incident where um our lord is talking about himself as the bread of life and lots of his disciples his followers leave him um because they can't accept the idea of eating his his flesh and drinking his blood um and then our lord turns to the apostles and says you will you also leave me and it's Peter who answers for them and says, you know, to whom shall we go, Lord? You, you are uh, the, the only one who has the words of life. And we've believed that, that you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And so it's interesting. It's, it's Peter each and every time who answers for the other apostles. But this is there's a certain, you know, solemnity to this moment. And this time, um, you know, our, our Lord is going to re- respond to Peter. And just as Peter has confessed um, his faith in Christ on behalf of the other apostles, um, giving the answer for all of them. Um, our Lord is going to turn around and, and he's going to give Peter, um, his identity. So, so Peter has identified who Christ is. Christ is now going to identify who Peter is. Um, so, so Peter says to Christ, you know, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus turns to him and says, um, you know, I, I say to thee, uh, that thou art Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give to thee uh, the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatsoever thou shalt bind upon earth, it shall be bound also in heaven and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth, it shall be loosed also in heaven. Um, so those are the essential words. I, I have to admit, just because I'm kind of uh, skipping through my notes right now, I, I missed, um, obviously, bef- before our Lord says that, he says, blessed are you, Simon, uh, son of Jonah, uh, because it's not flesh and blood uh, that has revealed this to you, but my Father is in heaven. And then, and then he continues, and I say to you, thou art Peter, and, and upon this rock I shall build my church. So th- those are the words. Um, that's that's the text. Um Peter just said who he thinks our Lord is, uh, who he knows our Lord is by by divine inspiration, and he says that on behalf of all the apostles. And then our Lord turns around to him and says, well, this is who you are, Peter. You are the rock. You are the one that I'm going Mm -hmm. to build my church on. Um, So that's the quotation. Um, And there's plenty of of words there that indicate uh, not just a preeminence of honor, but of authority, um, because if Peter's the rock, the foundation uh, upon which Christ builds his church, um, well, it's a, a foundation. The p- purpose of that is to keep the building together. And what is it that, what is it that keeps a society together? It's, it's precisely authority. Um, Peter receives the keys of the kingdom of heaven, um, and the power to bind and loose. Uh, all of these, uh, terms refer to authority. Um, 
So this is going to be our, our major, one of two major proof texts to show that Peter's primacy is not merely one of honor, but of authority. Um, and yet before we go on further, um, we need to satisfy the critiques of the, um, you know, rationalists, the, the, the biblical, uh, scholars who at one point or another have maybe challenged the authenticity of this passage. So that's what we'll do before we, before we discuss the meaning of the passage in greater detail. Um, so there are all of these critiques, uh, about the scriptures, uh, about the authenticity of the scriptures, um, which again, we're, we're kind of tackling some of those aspects as we go through this apologetic series. Uh, but one of the critiques is, well, I, I guess there's a couple of notable ones. One is there's no possible way that, that all these people could have remembered all of this stuff. You know, it's, it's just unreliable due to human error. Another one would be, well, maybe some of this stuff was inserted later on hmm. in order to build up Peter's authority. So it was sort of a conspiracy theory. We were joking earlier about conspiracy yes. theories, but there's this idea that, well, this was a conspiracy theory. Peter wanted to have this prominence. And so he added in these texts a little bit later or convinced some of the other apostles to do that. Uh, is there anything that kind of disproves this or, or gives some evidence against? Yeah, well, we can say, start by saying that there's no evidence for the theory, um, other than that it, it kind of fits, uh, an a priori philosophical agenda. Um, it's the agenda of modernists, rationalists who think that, um, the church, uh, the Catholic church as it is today could only have evolved gradually, um, from some very, you know, basic rudimentary thing that, that, you know, assuming Christ, most of them would grant that Christ is a historical per person, um, but they would say that whatever Christ started, the movement that he started was something very, um, amorphous, indefinite, um, perhaps it was even concerned with some kind of imminent, uh, messianic kingdom, uh, not a, not a church that would last for centuries. Um, and so their, um, you know, their predisposition, their, um, what's the word, their, their fundamental prejudice is that, um, our Lord could not have had, uh, a church in mind. He had in mind, you know, an imminent, messianic kingdom, the end of the world that he was preaching. Um, and so he would not have bothered uh, to set up a kind of, you know, structure or governing authority that would last for ages and ages. Um, and, and so that's actually the, the critique that the rationalists come from, as opposed to Protestants, um, who would be specifically, um, well, um, they're, they're very viscerally opposed to a primacy of Peter over the, over the other apostles. Um, the rationalists, they don't like that either. They, they want to say that that's a result of the gradual evolution of the Christian consciousness, but it's more radical than that because they think that even the idea of a church is something that only came about later when, you know, Jesus failed to bring about this messianic kingdom. He was instead uh, apprehended by the Romans and crucified. And so the disciples said, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? You know, this is a disaster. Well, let's, let's, let's make the best of the situation. And instead of uh, continuing to preach this messianic kingdom that never came about, let's instead, uh, you know, build a church on this, this transformation of, of, um, this kind of mythological transformation of, of the person of Christ. We're going to transform him into the founder of a church rather than the prophet of a, of a messianic kingdom. Um, and it's, it's true that in the gospels, our Lord is always talking about the kingdom of heaven. Um, 
And it's very rarely that he uses the term church. In fact, I think the only other time in the Gospels themselves that you'll find the term church is where he, he says, you know, if your brother offends uh, you, then go, um, you know, bring someone else, uh, to, to witness to him that he should stop. And if he doesn't listen to them, well, um, take, him to the church. And if he doesn't listen to the church, then let him be to you as the heathen and the public publican. So our Lord, he does occasionally use the word church, but it's pretty rare. Um, and so basically to make a long story short, the rationalists, um, thought for, you know, these kind of, uh, philosophical prejudices that they had, they, they thought that, uh, this couldn't possibly be a genuine text. However, um, there is no actual textual evidence against the authenticity of, of this passage because it appears in all of the manuscripts, even the most early ones, um, and all of the early translations. We have, for example, um, a Syriac translation from the second century, which contains this mm. passage. It's not missing anywhere. So if you just look at the textual evidence, there's, there's no evidence for this being uh, a later interpre interpolation. And to corroborate that, um, there's a lot of things that corroborate that. I mean, there, there's also the fact that this passage is cited or alluded to by other early, you know, Christian documents. So, for example, the apocryphal Gospel of the Hebrews, which is probably dating from the first century. Um, Pastor Hermas, which is from around the year 150 AD. Uh, Saint Justin Martyr, same time. Uh, Saint Irenaeus, uh, just 30 years later, 180 AD. Um, Tertullian and Origen around 280, you know, all of these people very early on are mentioning this passage. Um, so, uh, how, how would you possibly have inserted a passage of such importance, uh, successfully into the gospel of St. Matthew? Um, you know, one of the first gospels to be spread around, um, in such a way that it's found in all of the earliest manuscripts that we possess. Um, and, um, is referenced by all these other sources so early on. Um, you know, the, the, the interpola interpolation must have been done in the lifetime of the apostles or at least in their living memory, um, in, in this hypothesis. But how would you possibly get away with that? Um, when you're talking about a public event that all the other apostles would have been, you know, witness to. Um, they would have been the first ones to say, no, this is not what happened. You know, Pe uh, Jesus never said that to Peter. Um, so it's, so it's just completely implausible from the historical perspe perspective. Um, and then finally, we can, we can mention as well internal evidence from the passage, um, indicating that it, that is coherent. It fits with the rest of the text. Um, especially the use of many Semitic expressions, um, Hebrewisms, which, you know, if this had been some kind of conspiracy hatched up by, um, you know, Romans and some people in the, in the diocese where, where St. Peter was, they probably would have, uh, been of Greek or Latin origin, not of, not of Jewish origin. Um, but this author was clearly Semitic, clearly Jewish, uh, using phrases like, you know, blessed are you, son of Jonah, flesh and blood, um, the metaphor of binding and loosing. And finally, um, the play on words between uh, Peter and Rock uh, in, in the Greek passage that we have, because only Greek translations of St. Matthew's gospel have, have survived, uh, although tradition holds the original to have been written in, in Aramaic. Um, in the Greek, we have um, a, a difference between uh, Petros, which is masculine, uh, and then Petra, um, which is the rock. 
so it's not exactly the same ending, uh, which which damages a little bit the play on words. It's not as as clear. It's not as strong. Whereas mm. in Aramaic, it would have been uh, kefa both times, kefa, or sometimes it's rendered kefas because that's that's the kind of um, when it's transliterated into, into Greek, that's the ending that, that the Greeks put on it. But in, in the Aramaic, it would have been kefa, exactly the same term both times. So all of this is, is evidence to say that whoever, you know, would have inserted this passage, they must have been of Hebrew origin. Um, what would their, their motivation have been then? Um, because, you know, this would have been some kind of ploy to establish Peter's supremacy and Peter's in Rome. So why would a Hebrew be interested right. in this? Um, and, you know, he, w- he would have done it in such a masterful way as to be able to deceive everyone and have it found in all of the, the earliest copies and cited by all the early authors. It's just, it, it's impossible. It's, it's beyond belief. Yeah. That is fascinating. I had never heard that, uh, that, uh, com- combating of, of the, of the idea using linguistics before. That's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Um, okay. So all these things would have to fit together absolutely perfectly. There would again have to be a grand conspiracy and then a writer in Rome who's very good with Aramaic. Not a whole lot of those oh, people yeah. around, probably. Um, so this is going to be pretty close to provable. It, it's as, as close as we can as get. As historically <laughs> certain as any other text is uh, in terms of authenticity. There's just there's no no good reason to doubt it. Um, I, one thing I forgot to mention as well is um, you know if if this passage is not genuine, uh, if this incident did not take place, uh, Jesus calling Peter the rock on which he'll build his church. Well, why did Jesus change uh, Simon's name to Peter in the first place? Um, which is something that's recorded by all the other evangelists, um, or at least by, by St. Mark and, and St. John. Um, and the name itself, Peter, it's not like, you know, Simon would have already had that nickname before. And then, you know, Jesus kind of likes it and says, well, you know, I, I prefer your nickname, Peter. Let's just call you by that. Um, because Peter simply was not a name that was used. Um, or, or Kephas, right. as it would have been in Aramaic. Um, you know, if you look up the, the, the name Peter in, in a, a etymology, a dictionary of etymologies, um, you're going to find that it, it comes from this. Um, it was not a name in circulation. So how does this na- name come out of nowhere? Um, what's the explanation for it? If not what we read in Matthew 16, 18. Can I, can I jump in and pose one other thing that I've, that I recently heard about this on another podcast and I have no idea if this is, entirely accurate or not, but sure. it a little bit blew my mind when I heard it. Um, and the concept of the temple in Jerusalem mm-hmm. was the, the Jewish tradition was that the temple of Jerusalem was built on a rock. And mm-hmm. this was the final rock of creation, according to the Jewish uh, idea of the creation of, of the world. And so the final rock, this was like the keystone of the entire world and the temple was built on it. And so it was a sacred space, this sacred rock. Mm-hmm. And so then Christ goes to Peter and says, you are the rock on which I will build my church. And it's very different because the Jewish idea of the temple being in a specific time in a very specific place. Well, in the new covenant, now we have the church built on essentially a man who is, it's not, it's not Jerusalem. It's the church is universal. It is literally Catholic. And I thought that was an interesting interpretation. I don't know how, whether that was intentional or not, or if this is totally fabricated, but at the very least, I thought it was interesting or an interesting thought. Yeah, I'd certainly say that that has has some credibility. I've never heard it before myself either, but but I don't see why that couldn't be true. 
Um, it does, you know, it does, um, correspond well to other things that we know, even what our Lord says to the Samaritan woman, um, you know, who, who says, well, which is correct. You know, our fathers always worshiped on this mountain in Samaria, but you know, you Jews, you say that it's at the temple that you have to worship. And, and our Lord says, well, you know, um, soon enough, the time is coming that, uh, you know, it, it won't be at the Jewish temple nor on this mountain uh-huh. in Samaria, but, um, you know, anywhere that 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 the heavenly father will be worshiped because he's he's god is a spirit and he needs to be worshiped in spirit and in truth so uh, i think that 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 does harmonize yeah. well with what you said it is interesting there's there's so much hidden in the scriptures that i'm i'm just now barely scratching the surface of you know through some yeah. of these studies with you father it's it's fascinating um okay so how do we how do we go and and look at I mean, this seems so obvious. So can we take a look and see how the the Protestant reformers would look at this? Uh, how Absolutely. can they really, uh, you know, how can they, how can they get away from it? it? Yes, exactly. So, yeah. Um, well, I mean, first of all, uh, <laughs> They at least didn't have the audacity to um, call into question the authenticity of the passage. All of the Protestant reformers, they accepted the passage as genuine. Um, and so they had to try to find some way to twist the meaning of it so that it wouldn't refer to um, Peter having a true primacy of jurisdiction over the other apostles. So they adopted interpretations, which were far from the obvious one. Um, so, you know, uh, first of all, the term rock, that's, that's a key one. So, is Peter, uh, Petros, uh, and then rock, which in the Greek gospel is Petra, are those referring to the same thing? Um, well, if we consult uh, Calvin, <laughs> when Christ said, you are Peter and upon this rock I will be my church, when he said rock, <laughs> Calvin, Calvin thinks our Lord is pointing to himself. <laughs> so um, you are Peter and upon this rock that is me, not you, <laughs> I will build my church. Um, uh, it's just completely incoherent, right? Um, <laughs> right. It, it makes no sense. Um, other interpretations were a little bit more plausible. Uh, Luther, for example, said that the rock on which Christ will build his church is, is the faith or the confession of faith of believers in general, but not, not Peter particularly, uh, not him as an individual or his confession of faith. Um, and, uh, to be fair to Luther, um, the interpretation of, of faith being the rock on which the, the church is built um, is not completely absent from uh, patristic in- interpretation, what the early church fathers said. Um, there were some of them, especially um, with the start of the Arian crisis, um, who adopted this interpretation, um, but not to, the, not to the exclusion of Peter himself. Um, it, was, it was certainly a helpful interpretation to um, emphasize the role of faith uh, and specifically faith in the divinity of Christ during the Arian crisis. Uh, and so the church fathers would naturally say, um, you know, the, the church is built upon the foundation of, of faith in Christ as God and not just some kind of Superman. Um, so they tended to adopt this more metaphorical interpretation of rock rather than, rather than emphasizing it, the, the concrete aspect of this man um, who by his confession of faith merited to be, uh, to become the, the foundation of the church. Um, so there's a legitimate uh, way in which one can accept that that interpretation, but not if it's to the exclusion of, of Peter himself, the man who, by his profession of faith, merits this this title and this dignity um, and, and this office, this role in the church. Um, 
uh, certainly the connection between the two things are very, very, is very intimate because it's, uh, as I already said, on account of Peter's profession of faith that he receives this, um, this responsibility, this honor. Um, but also it's precisely by confirming his brethren in the faith, um, that he will uphold the church and, and he will ensure its unity in, in one true faith, um, in fidelity to the doctrine of Christ. So faith is definitely involved, but, um, what Luther and other Protestant reformers tried to do was to, um, separate the faith from the man who professed it, Peter, um, saying that, that Christ is not giving anything to Peter in particular that he doesn't give to the whole church, to every believer. And that's where the very context of this, um, of these words of Christ, of this quotation is, um, crucial for understanding what's going on because, um, what is Christ doing? He's rewarding Peter for, for Peter's confession of faith by which Peter singled himself out from all the other apostles who were, you know, maybe at a loss for words, who were not ready to speak. Um, so how could our Lord be rewarding Peter if what he gives Peter is not Peter's in particular? It's, it's for everyone. Right. Um, that doesn't make sense. Um, and then it doesn't make sense given the words that follow because it's very clear that right after our Lord calls Peter the rock, um, he continues, and to you, I will give the keys of the, of the kingdom of heaven, uh, to you. Um, and it's, it's in the singular, um, which is, you know, more clear in, in the Greek, obviously, than in, in our English translations. Um, so to you, singular, I give the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Um, so if our Lord had not been referring to Peter in particular, there would be once again, this abrupt change of, of focus of, of who our Lord is addressing. Um, so the only thing that makes sense within the context of the passage taken as a whole is that all of this concerns Peter in particular as an individual. Okay. So again, it's, it's this idea that, well, maybe he was speaking to everyone in the church or speaking to Christ himself. But again, the, the translations of the scriptures, again, going back to our previous section, all the scriptures or all the translations, even of the scriptures make it pretty clear he was speaking to Peter himself. It's you, singular. This is where it comes in. Um, it's interesting. He also, we have this metaphor of the keys. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as Catholics, those who are Catholics who are watching this, you know what, what keys means. It's letting people into heaven or keeping people out of heaven. That's why we have in this kind of colloquial term, Peter standing at the pearly gates. Um, but can we dive a little bit deeper into that idea? And could you explain that a little bit more, Father? Absolutely. I'd be happy to. So, um, this, and this is where, uh, once again, the, uh, governing power of Peter, uh, true primacy of jurisdiction becomes abundantly clear. Um, the, so the keys of the kingdom of heaven, um, first of all, the kingdom of heaven, we imagine, as you said, you know, the pearly gates, uh, Peter standing there opening the gates so that we can enter heaven. But what is the kingdom of heaven? We see so often in Christ's parables that it's referring often to the church on earth, the church militant. Um, you know, uh, one, one example that comes to mind is where our Lord says the kingdom of heaven is like a net, which is, um, you know, cast into the sea and it gathers into it all kinds of fish. Um, and then, you know, at the end of the world, the, the net is drawn up to the shore and the angels come and they pick through the fish and the bad ones they cast out, you know, um, and the good ones they put into vessels to be preserved. Um, so obviously the kingdom of heaven there is, is the church. It's, it's something which is a reality here on earth. Um, 
even if, um, you know, there's also a heavenly aspect to it. Um, so the keys of, of the kingdom of heaven may well and, and do uh, well refer to the church here on earth. Um, and hmm. the keys, um, are a symbol of power of authority. This is not something that's obvious to us today. Um, because you don't have, for example, you know, fortified cities with, with a physical wall around them and then gates, which have a lock that would be, you know, turns that open and closed by an enormous pair of keys. But, um, you know, there, there were, these kinds of things. This is, this is, this was normal in the time of our Lord and for many centuries afterwards, um, that the, the city would be fortified. It would have a wall and, and, you know, the wall would have a, a principal gate that would, uh, be open and closed. And if you, if you were in charge of the city, um, it was you, uh, to whom the keys belonged. You know, maybe someone else was actually the, the doorkeeper, uh, in terms of their day to day occupation, but the keys belonged to you as the ruler of the city. And when a ruler, a prince or monarch or whatever would perhaps invade enemy, enemy territory and conquer a city, um, what would be the sign that the city submits to him and that he takes possession of it? Well, uh, you know, the city sends out a delegation with the keys of the city, um, which are handed over to, surrendered to the, the conquering prince or, or king. Um, and these keys, once again, we're talking about keys to, you know, enormous, uh, doors or gates. And so the keys themselves would be very, very large. Um, and they would even be carried over the shoulder. Um, which is why we read, for example, in the prophecy of Isaiah, so I think it's chapter nine, um, that, you know, a, a child is born to us, um, a son is given to us and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Um, why upon his shoulder? Well, because, um, the keys are, which symbolize the government would be carried over the shoulder. Um, and, and if there be any, any doubt about this whatsoever, um, it's, it's well worth mentioning. There's another passage in the book of Isaiah, um, that, uh, reiter reiterates this, um, in even clearer language, um, I hope you'll forgive me because, oh, here we go. I found it. Um, so, uh, this is God saying to the prophet Isaiah, thus saith the Lord God of hosts, uh, go get thee in to Sobna, who is over the temple, and thou shalt say to him, I will call my servant Eliasim, Eliakim, uh, the son of Halsias, and I will give thy power into his hand, and I will lay the key of the house of David upon his shoulder, and he shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. Um, so hmm. I shall I will lay the key of the house of David upon his shoulder, signalizing this hmm. this uh, transfer of authority, um, because he had just said, "I will give thy power." Um, that is the power of the 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 one who's over the temple. I will give it into his hand. Um, so it's a transfer of power, which is symbolized by this metaphor of, of the keys. Um, and our Lord himself makes reference to this very passage in the Apocalypse, um, where he says, um, and forgive me because I'm, I'm having to dig th through things again, um, but basically he refers to himself as the, the one with the keys of David who opens and no man shuts and he shuts and no man, no man opens. I, I lost the quotation, mm -hmm. but, but that's what it is. Um, okay. So yes, that it's a very specific, it has a very specific meaning, not something that we're all familiar with. Right. Right. What about, um, he gives Peter the keys. He says, you are the rock, but he also says, uh, 
you know, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is loose in heaven. Um, again, what is, could we dive into that just, just for a second, Father? Absolutely. So this is the last of the things that our Lord is promising to, to Peter here. Um, and this, uh, you know, superficially would appear to be the same power that our Lord gives to his apostles um, in Matthew chapter 18. So two chapters later in the same gospel, it's the power of binding and loosing, which is a, a metaphor used by the Hebrews to refer to the power to um, authentically interpret the law. And, and thus, you know, that means indirectly, if you interpret the law to impose a certain burden, then you are indirectly imposing that burden on someone. Or if you say that the law does not oblige you to do this, then you're, you're lifting the, the burden. You're loosing that person, person from it. Um, so it can refer to authentic interpretation of divine law. It can, it can also refer to legislative authority to pass human laws, um, which of course are, are meant to be complementary to divine law. Um, so we see in the church that our Lord himself has laid down certain laws, like the, for example, unless you eat the, the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you shall not have life in you. Um, so there's a commandment to receive the Holy Eucharist. Um, you know, or, um, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, uh, all, all these different things. This is part of divine law, um, given directly by our Lord himself. But then, um, the church has the power to pass her own laws, which are there to, um, help us to better observe divine law. Um, and so anyways, this, this metaphor of binding and loosing is, um, a, a clear indication that Peter is receiving the power to authentically d interpret divine law and even to pass uh, laws himself. Um, and then the fact that this same power is given to the other apostles, um, but only after it's been given first to Peter alone and individually would be a sign that the other apostles um, receive um, their, their governing power, their jurisdictional power from Peter, um, or at the very least that they must exercise it in subordination to him under his direction. Um, and this is the only one of the things that, that, that belongs in some measure to Peter and to the others. Um, Christ does not say to the other apostles, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That's something he only says to St. Peter. He doesn't say to the other apostles, you know, um, you are a rock. So the rock metaphor, the, the key metaphor, all of that is proper to Peter. Um, even if the other apostles will share to some extent in his power of governance as signified in, in binding and loosing. Right. It goes to him first and then flows to the others. Yeah, exactly. Um, after this passage in scriptures, then we have the time after our Lord's resurrection. And he has this interesting kind of turn of phrase with Peter when he's talking to Peter. And I'll be honest, Father, it's always confused me a little bit. So I'm, I'm looking forward to this explanation. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Where he's... He's asking uh, Peter first, do you, do you love me more than the others? And then he says, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Yes. Why does he ask Peter three times and what's lambs versus sheep? Why? It seems a little bit redundant. Okay. Um, absolutely. So first of all, um, what we just saw was the promise of the primacy, not the actual conferral. Um, this passage that you're, you're now bringing up is where our Lord actually bestows this, this authority on Peter. Um, so that's to, to put everything in its place. Um, now, why does our Lord use the metaphor of, of lambs and then sheep? Um, and, and why this distinction between the two? Well, well, actually in the Greek text, there's a distinction between three terms, it seems. Um, although, uh, well, there, there might be some slight variance in the manuscripts, but, um, our Lord says, 
And once again, uh, because I had to um, move rooms, my notes are kind of in a mess. But here we go. I found it. Um, our Lord, our Sorry. Lord uses um, the terms um, arnia, which refers to lambs, um, and then he uses the term. Uh, Probatia, which would be little sheep. It's a diminutive ending. Um, and then he uses mm. the term probata, which is sheep, uh, meaning normal sheep, big sheep, uh, without that diminutive ending. So, um, ar- arnia, probatia, and then probata, um, which indicates that there's a certain progression here, um, going from small sheep or lambs to, you know, slightly bigger ones to the biggest. And this is, indicating uh-huh. as many commentators say that there's uh, our lord is entrusting to peter um all of his lambs without distinction not only for example the laity but also the other members of the hierarchy who would be the the sheep the probata um so it's an indication that that what is being entrusting to, to entrusted to peter is not the care of this or that portion of christ's flock but all of it uh little people and big the subjects and the other rulers as well and the other apostles um and that's made even more clear by the fact that our Lord, um, in questioning Peter, um, so yes, he questions Peter three times to presumably to uh, allow Peter to atone for his triple denial by saying three times, yes, Lord, I, I love you. Um, but the first time our Lord asked Peter, he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Um, and to be clear, that's not saying, yeah. do you love me more than you love these other people, the, the other apostles? No, it's, it's, do you love me more than these? The apostles love me. Is your love for me greater than theirs? Um, so just as, um, earlier on with the promise of the primacy, um, Christ is, is wishing Peter to distinguish himself from the other apostles in his confession of faith. Um, now he wants Peter to distinguish himself from the other apostles in his love. Um, and of course, Peter being humble, being, having been humbled by his fall, he's not going to say, yes, Lord, I certainly do love you more than all the other, uh, other apostles. But, um, so he's not going to say that. He's uh-huh. just going to contend himself with saying, well, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Um, you know, I love you. Yeah. Yeah. Which is beautiful. But, but, um, that doesn't erase yeah. the fact that our Lord had asked him specifically, do you love me more than these? Um, and, and that's because, what our Lord is about to give Peter is something that Peter alone will possess or, or what, which he will possess in, in, you know, far greater abundance than, than the others than the other apostles, because they'll possess some, they'll possess some, some share in Christ's authority to, to govern, but only a particular church, whereas Peter will receive the care of the universal church. As we saw in that, that, you know, tr- metaphor of the, the, the lambs, the little sheep and the big sheep. It is sorry for cutting you off, Father. It, no, it is interesting because you you hear that common phrase: "With great power comes great responsibility." Right? You know, Spider Man, whatever. Um, but you have it's not it's a it's a slight distinction here, but it's interesting because it's not just with great power for Peter; he also has responsibility. Yeah, that's given. But with great power, you need to love the Lord more. Your your love for the Lord needs to be excessive in order to carry out that great power. And that's an interesting kind of twist on the common with great power comes great responsibility thing. Right, right. And commenting on that, um, I don't have the quote in front of me. It's, you know, when you study this, you read through lists of, you know, tens and twenties and thirties, uh, you know, um, an enormous quantity of quotations from the church fathers. So you start to mix things up in your mind. But I think it's St. Augustine sure. who says in reference to that, that, you know, um, uh, 
our Lord was going to confide to Peter, you know, a primacy of power, but he required from Peter first a primacy of love, that Peter love him more than all the others. Um, so it's a beautiful thing. Yes. Um, it is. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think, uh, before we move on from this, this episode though, which is, which is really important. Um, if I can just mention once again, um, we have to deal with textual criticism. Um, and this passage, like uh, Matthew 16, 18, um, has been regarded by some not as an interpolation, because an interpolation is a, a short passage which is stuck in the middle of, of an authentic one uh, later on, um, but more as an, an appendix. Um, and um, the reason for this, there is a, a textual reason to regard this uh, 21st chapter, the final chapter of St. John's Gospel as an appendix, because he St. John ends chapter 20, the previous chapter, with um, uh, what seems to be a concluding sentence. Um, I think it, it ends with, Many other signs also did Jesus in the sight of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and uh, that believing you may find life in his name. Um, I hope I got that right because I all my papers mm-hmm. are mixed up. Anyways, um, yep. so um, that would seem to indicate that the gospel was originally ended there. So how is it that we have this extra 21st chapter in which we find the, um, you know, uh, um, the bestowal of the primacy upon Peter. Um, once again, are we dealing with some kind of a conspiracy? Um, people, you know, St. Peter and his minions are trying to, um, establish, you know, and legitimize his us- usurpation of the church's government or something. Um, well, uh, first of all, um, it is possible. And, and in fact, you know, it may be probable that St. John, the evangelist, um, added this chapter Afterwards, and perhaps it was one of the purposes for adding it was to um, affirm the primacy of Peter, which perhaps was being called into question. Um, it's not it's not unusual for the scriptural authors authors of the New Testament to write what they write precisely for it, a definite apologetic purpose. I mean, Saint John wrote his gospel to answer answer the um, those who were uh, calling into question Christ's divinity. And so he starts his gospel with a very clear confession of that. You know, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. It's, it's, uh, he writes with an apologetical purpose. Um, and quite, uh, deliberately, you'll see that, you know, there's not a lot of overlap between the gospel of St. John and the other gospels because St. John's concern is, you know, the other three, what we call the synoptic gospels, they've already been, uh, you know, spread far and wide among the, Christian, um, population. Um, but St. John, who was an eyewitness of everything that happened with our Lord, uh, you know, realized that, um, there are some things that are missing and also some truths that need to be mm-hmm. expressed more clearly and emphasized. So, um, it's not out of the question. In other words, that, that St. John might have added this, um, kind of epilogue at a later date. Um, but, uh, it's very reasonable even just from a purely historical critical perspective to think that it's St. John himself who adds this final chapter, um, because the style is consistent with the rest of the gospel. Um, so there's no internal reason to doubt it. And also, um, just as with the passage in, in St. Matthew, um, this 21st chapter is found in all of the manuscripts and early translations of the gospels. Um, so again, you know, the, it's, it's, 
practically impossible that it could have been universally accepted and incorporated into the Gospel of St. John by the entire church. Um, if it was some kind of fraudulent, um, edition made by someone else who was not St. John, um, in order to, you know, help St. Peter or maybe a, a successor of St. Peter to, uh, illegitimately usurp, uh, authority sure. in the church. <laughs> so. Okay. All right. That makes sense. Well, we are uh, approaching the end, and this is a longer episode, but again, the, the papacy is one of those things that, like you identified at the very beginning, there's there's hang-ups on the Protestant side, there's hang-ups on the uh, Eastern Orthodox side. Um, but as the last point, what about after the Ascension? These are all things that Christ have said. These are all things that are in the Gospels that are during the time of Christ. Um, what happened after the ascension? Did the other apostles follow up and did they recognize, uh, Peter's primacy, uh, even after our Lord had, had left? Um, great question. So, um, before I answer this, let me just uh, point out that, um, there are different things that I wish that I had said earlier on in the, in this interview. Um, and this is one of them. Um, uh, and I think that we'll probably be able to post the notes for the, the subjects sure. on, on our website. So people who are interested can consult those to, um, get more details, more references, and also perhaps, a, uh, and this is my fault, perhaps a more logical presentation of the subject matter. Um, no, I thought so, it was great. You're okay. good. So good. Well, anyways, um, so I wanted to say earlier on that, um, looking at the gospels, um, and, you know, the preferential tr treatment that St. Peter receives, you wouldn't expect to see evidence of, of Peter having a primacy of jurisdiction over the other apostles in the gospel. Um, one, because, um, you know, our Lord only promises a primacy of jurisdiction to Peter, uh, in Matthew 16, 18. Um, it's, he says, you know, to you, I will give the keys of the, of the kingdom of heaven. Um, so it's a promise. It's not actually conferred upon him at that time. Um, so yes, he, he's preferred to the other apostles in many ways. Uh, he's treated with greater honor, but he doesn't yet have authority over them. Um, and that's natural, um, because his role will be to be the, the vicar of Christ, um, on earth. And you can't really be a vicar for someone while he's still there. Um, the whole point is that Peter will represent Jesus once he's ascended into heaven. Um, so this mm -hmm. is why in the gospels themselves, um, you don't find, you know, even more indications of, of a Petrine primacy. It's because, um, the primacy is only promised to Peter and he can't really exercise it. Even, even if he had it, he couldn't really exercise it while our Lord is still there. Um, now after our Lord ascends into heaven, yes, you do see St. Peter starting to, um, exercise his primacy. Um, and, um, but even, even before I, I give some indications of that, um, we have to understand that, um, <laughs> well, the apostles, so the apostles have successors who are the bishops of, of the Catholic church. Um, even though the Eastern Orthodox would grant that the apostles have successors and that they would claim that their, their bishops succeed to the apostles. Um, but there is an important difference between that which the apostles receive from Christ, um, and then that which, um, the, their successors receive from, from them. Um, and so there are certain gifts, charisms that are proper to the apostles, such as, um, obviously a, a, an extremely elevated degree of holiness and, uh, even, 
church tradition has has it that the the apostles were personally infallible. Um, so you know when they go, I don't know when Saint Thomas goes out to India and preaches the gospel, um, God would assist him with an extraordinary charism uh, not to err in teaching the faith. Whereas you know nowadays, if if uh, a priest or even a bishop goes out and, and preaches the gospel somewhere, he could still make a mistake. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but for the, the gospels had to be personally infallible because their their role was so fundamental in, in establishing the church at its very commencement, its very beginning. Um, so because they're personally infallible, they have extraordinary holiness, all of this. Um, St. Peter is, is not going to need to intervene to correct them, to, uh, you know, clarify a doctrinal issue, to say, actually, that's wrong. That's a heresy. This is the truth. Um, nor to, you know, um, uh, correct some kind of disciplinary problem because the, the apostles, the other apostles are not going to be misbehaving and, and needing Peter to go right. in and say, well, you know, you're all corrupt and let's, let's kick you out and, and bring in someone who can do the job. Um, that's not how it is. So, that's why even in the lifetime of St. Peter, um, his primacy is not going to be exercised to the same extent as it will be later on by his successors who have to deal with, with, um, bishops who don't have, um, all of the extraordinary personal charisms that the apostles had. Um, so that, that's a preface. But nevertheless, uh, we look at the Acts of the Apostles and we see very clearly St. Peter's leading role, um, to begin with. Um, as the apostles are waiting for the coming of the Holy Ghost, they're in the cenacle, and it's St. Peter who says, okay, well, um, we, we're not 12 anymore. We're only 11. Uh, one of us, unfortunately, has uh, <laughs> kind of gone off the wall, so to speak, and he's no longer with us. Um, so what are we going to do? We need to replace him. And St. Peter is the one who initiates that process and who says, who determines the way that it will be done. Well, we'll, we'll draw lots and, and, and so on. So that, that whole process of electing, um, a replacement apostle is done by Peter's direction under his authority. Um, we don't see any indication that the remaining 11 apostles had a vote to see, well, will we, will we choose someone to replace Judas or not? Uh, it's, it's Peter who's acting. Right. Um, then the Holy Ghost comes, um, on the apostles and they go out to preach. And who is it that delivers the first sermon? Uh, who is it that, that holds, holds the, the word and, and speaks to everyone? It's Peter. It's not anyone else. Um, the apostles are apprehended by the, well, actually before that, um, you know, the, who, who works the first public miracle in Christ's name to testify that, you know, although Christ was crucified, he, he's still living and he still is able to work miracles. Well, it's, it's Peter who says the, the man who's, um, you know, crippled and sitting by the entrance to the temple, um, he says to him, you know, I don't have gold or silver to give you, but in the name of Jesus uh, of Nazareth, you know, arise and walk. Um, and so it's Peter who works that first miracle, which is important. It's a, it's a public demonstration that, the whole Jesus problem, if I may put it that way, is, is not over. Uh, the, the leaders of the Jews did not get what they wanted by crucifying our Lord. Um, he's true God. He, he, he has risen from the dead and he is still at work. Um, this is, this is not over. <laughs> so it's St. Peter who does that. Then the apostles are apprehended and taken in front of the, the leaders of the synagogue and questioned. And it's St. Peter who responds in the name of the other apostles saying, you know, we have to obey God rather than men. Um, then there comes up very quickly the issue of, um, you know, what to do with the Gentile converts, uh, or can the Gentiles even convert and be baptized and received into the, the, 
community of of uh, Christians of of those who believe in Christ, um, if they're not circumcised and not observing the Jewish law. Um, it doesn't seem like our Lord gave explicit instructions, remarkably enough, to to his apostles on that subject. Um, and but but Saint Peter um, is going to be instruct, instructed from heaven by a vision that he receives. You know where the the blanket or cloth, whatever is is um, lowered from heaven, containing all kinds of unclean animals. And he's told Peter, you know, go go eat. And he says, I've never eaten anything, you know, unclean in my life. No, Lord, don't ask me to do this. And he's told what what God has sanctified, you you must not call unclean. And so that's referring to the the uncircumcised Gentiles who don't observe the Mosaic law. God is going to call them clean, and you have to treat them as clean, meaning you have to receive them into the church. So it's St. Peter who who receives that vision, who goes and baptizes the centurion Cornelius. Um, so he sets the precedent for the the rest of the church. And then when when troubles continue to arise about the uh, the question of whether converts must be obliged to observe the Mosaic law, um, it's Peter who you know convenes a council at Jerusalem and who takes the leading role, who, who speaks and gives his opinion, and that puts an end to the controversy. Um, so we do see uh, consistently throughout the Acts of the Apostle, St. Peter always being the head, the leader of the Apostles. Well, but just to play again devil's advocate, Father, doesn't the fact that St. Peter was wrong about this issue mm. initially and St. Paul corrects him, doesn't that kind of put a kink in the armor of the whole St. Peter is, is the head of the church thing? Yeah, great question. Um, so you're referring to what St. Paul um, describes in his letter to the Galatians. Um, he talks about how he was at Antioch with with his companion Barnabas, and then uh, Peter, whom St. Paul calls uh, Kephas, uh, just using the Aramaic term for his name, um, he comes to Antioch. And um, there were a lot of, so this was, I believe, as you say, prior to the council in Jerusalem, there were a lot of um, Judaizers or Jews who were still ob- uh, observing the um mosaic law um and they would eat separately from the gentile converts um who they still considered to be unclean um because they're uncircumcised and and so on um and saint paul and saint barnabas had been mixing freely with the gentile converts eating with them making no distinction between the judaizers and those who were not judaizers judaizers i'm sorry can't say the word right now (laughs) anyways um (laughs) (laughs) um, uh, so but then peter comes and he feels pressured into withdrawing from from the gentiles and just eating with the the jews who observe the 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 mosaic law um and this is obviously giving a bad example um it's insinuating that well maybe the mosaic law is still necessary for salvation you have to observe it or at the very least even if it's not necessary for salvation anymore um, because salvation is in christ um at the very least there's kind of a two-tiered system in the church two different levels uh there's there's the 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 gentile converts who are kind of you know lower scum of the earth type people the hoi polloi uh and then you have the judaizers who represent a higher class and and this is against the unity of the church um so it's, it's very scandalous um whatever you know whatever might have been saint peter's good intentions it was not the right thing to do and so saint paul stands up to him he says he writes to the galatians i resisted peter to the face um because what he did was reprehensible um and so yes your your objection is this shows that you know peter was not in charge or that he was not uh, a good leader um 
And so obviously we have to grant, yes, Peter made a mistake there. No question. Um, and so mm-hmm. we see that even, you know, the, the charism of, in, of infallibility, uh, is not the same thing as impeccability or sinlessness. And it doesn't mean that everything that you do will always be, uh, the most prudent thing. Um, uh, it doesn't mean that you're, you're never, um, uh, how do you put it beyond reproach? Um, but, um, we have to note, first of all, that uh, in order to resist someone who is putting the faith in danger or giving bad example, it's not necessary to be their superior. You don't have to be someone superior to tell them what you're doing is wrong. Um, <laughs> and so uh, this resistance of St. Paul to St. Peter, I mean, uh, I guess before I move on, let, let me just explain that by an analogy. I mean, in your family, for example, if 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 your dad tells you to do something wrong, he says to, you know, one of his sons, Hey son, go down the road and, and, you know, steal from the local grocery store. We need some eggs. Eggs are really expensive right now. So, you know, go get some. Uh, well, um, are you, you're under your, your father's authority. Do you obey him? Well, no, uh, you resist him even right. to the face. So, um, it's just, it, it doesn't mean that, that it's uh, the fact that St. Paul resists St. Peter does not mean that, that Paul was denying Peter's supremacy. Um, and we have quotations from the church fathers that indicate precise, precisely this. Um, they say that St. Paul is giving the example, um, uh, for inferiors to, um, be fearless and to correct their superiors in the church when their superiors are putting the faith in danger. And, uh, conversely, St. Peter himself also gives a good example to, uh, superiors, to prelates that um, when they are rebuked by their, their subjects, their automatic reaction should not be to lash out and say, well, you know, who are you to tell me what to do? Um, because they need to re- consider the, the rebuke, the correction and say, is this well founded? And if so, maybe I need to humble myself and accept correction, even though it's coming from my inferior. Um, and, and so just to give an example of, of how the church fathers comment on this, we have St. Cyprian. Um, he was Bishop of, of Carthage, I believe, in, in North Africa around the year 250 AD. Um, and he comments on this, this episode. He says, although St. Paul was in conflict with him, that is with, with Peter, on the subject of the circumcision, St. Peter, whom the Lord chose the first of them and upon whom he built his church, did not show any arrogance keeping himself from saying that he was possessing the primacy and that the new converts coming after him to Christianity must obey him. Um, so he could have said that in other words, he could have said, Hey, uh, St. Paul, I have the primacy. Um, everyone needs to obey me. But St. Cyprian says, although he had the primacy, although our Lord made him the foundation of the church, nevertheless, he did not show any arrogance and he didn't try to justify his conduct just by appealing to his authority. Um, so St. Cyprian grants that St. Peter has authority and says, look, this is a, this is actually, it's, it's, um, a good example that he's setting that even superiors can accept correction from their inferiors if it's warranted. Um, St. Augustine has a similar quotation too, which is very explicit, attributing the primacy to St. Peter and, and, and saying exactly the same thing. Oh, that's fascinating. So even that aspect of it does still show the primacy of Peter. And, and I guess we could go even further and say, if St. Peter wasn't actually the authority, then St. Paul wouldn't need to even resist him because there would be no authority to resist in the first place. Right. I mean, certainly uh, it does point to St. Peter's, uh, at the very least, his influence. Why is it that St. Peter uh, coming to Antioch, you know, this is um, 
I think St. Paul and, and, and St. Barnabas had already been there for quite some time. They were the ones preaching, making converts. They would have been the ones naturally to have the most authority and influence. And nevertheless, look what happens when St. Peter comes. Um, why is it that he's able to cause such, such widespread confusion by his, his, um, you know, bad policy, his, his, his bad choice? Well, it's because, um, he was considered to be the head of the church. Um, that's why this is so scandalous. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, we see a sign of this in, in the fact that even St. Barnabas, who was St. Paul's companion, um, and who was like St. Paul had been eating with the Gentile converts. When he sees St. Peter doing it, he withdraws from the Gentiles and starts eating only with the Judaizers along with St. Peter. Mm. So that, that's really a powerful attestation to how much authority, um, moral authority and authority in the strict sense St. Peter had in, in the church. Um, and we can also see in, in, you know, other places in the writings of St. Paul, the respect that St. Paul has for St. Peter. Um, I mentioned already that in 1 Corinthians 15, um, it's St. Peter who, who St. Paul names as the first of the testimonies to Christ's resurrection. Um, but also in this same epistle of, of his to the Galatians, um, he describes, of course, his own uh, conversion process, um, how he had been thrown off his horse and had this vision and all this. Um, and he says that, um, you know, then he, he went, he withdrew for three years into the wilderness. Um, and then he says, then after three years, I went to Jerusalem to see Peter and I tarried with him 15 days, but other apostles, I saw none saving James, the brother of the Lord. So mm-hmm. he only, you know, this is St. <laughs> Paul is a big name in the church. Um, but who among the apostles does he see? He, he sees no one but Peter and then later on you know, James, the brother of the Lord. And, and he goes to Jerusalem for right. the express purpose of visiting Peter, getting to know him, uh, spending 15 days with him. So, so, um, if anything, St. Paul is, is, is simply providing more evidence and corroboration of, of Peter's primacy. Oh, that's fascinating. Well, I think it's fairly a, a buttoned up case here, Father. Um, I've tried to give you all the objections that I can, playing devil's advocate on this. Uh, but I guess as, as we close, um, you know, this is again all in the scriptures, all in, you know, in the, in the early writings of the first generation, so to speak, of the church. Um, could we close with, are, are there other testimonies of other writers from, again, very early on, the second, third century, first century even? Absolutely. I'll, I'll quote some for you. Um, uh, and this will be just a, a very small sample, uh, representative, representative of, of many more quotations that could be given. Um, now the earliest quotation that I have on, on St. Peter specifically, um, and this is not to deny that there might be others earlier, but I have one from Tertullian, who was a church father writing in, in the early third century. So the year 220 AD, um, and he says, was anything hidden from Peter, from him who was called the rock on which the church would be built, from him who received the keys of the kingdom of heaven? Um, so that's from his work, De Prescripcione, uh, chapter 22. Um, and then uh, Origen, uh, who is actually an, an Eastern church father um, from Alexandria, I believe. And he wrote around the year 225, when Peter was given full charge of feeding the sheep, and when the church was founded upon him as on solid ground, he was required to admit of just one virtue, charity. Um, so that's from his commentary on the St. Paul's letter to the Romans. Um, and then also we have um, from him a, a homily on Exodus, 
where he says, See what the Lord said to that great foundation of the church, that most solid rock upon which Christ founded his church, um, referring to, to Peter. So, um, it's, this already gives the lie to those, you know, Protestant uh, reformers who came along later and said, well, no, the, you know, our Lord never referred to Peter as the rock upon which he built his church. Um, well, if you had read the church fathers, you would, you would see that this was commonplace. This was right. their, their common interpretation. Um, if you can suffer uh, one or two more quotes before, before moving sure. on from that, um, St. St. Ephraim again. Uh, so I'm, I'm quoting actually primarily, um, Eastern church fathers because they're more pertinent to the, the Eastern Orthodox. Um, St. Ephraim was a deacon in Syria, I believe. Um, and he wrote around the year 360. Um, Simon, my disciple, I have made you the foundation of the Holy Church. I have already called you Peter because you will, um, support, I think is the word. I'm, I'm missing a word here because you will support the entire edifice. You are the overseer of those who build up my church in this world. If they want to build anything awry, you, the foundation, shall prevent them. You are the head of the font from which my doctrine is drawn. You are the head of my disciples. Uh, through you, I will give drink to all the nations. Yours is that vivifying sweetness that I bestow. I have chosen you to be like the firstborn in my institution and to be made the heir of my treasures. I have given the keys of my kingdom to you. Behold, I have established you as a prince over all my treasures. You could hardly be more thorough and more poetic in, in describing Peter's right. privacy. Um, last right. one that I'll quote from the, the Church Fathers, St. John Chrysostom, uh, obviously a big name, uh, both in the Western and the Eastern Church. He's, he's, um, he was the patriarch of, um, I, I want to say Antioch or Constant, no, Constantinople. Pardon me. I think he was from, I think he was a monk in Antioch or the bishop of Antioch and then he was promoted, promoted to be patriarch of Constantinople, something like that. Um, anyways, he wrote in the year 400. Um, Peter then was the director of that choir, the mouth of the apostles, the head of that family, the governor of the whole world, the foundation of the church. Uh, that's in his Adversus Jovinianum, uh, chapter one, verse 26. Um, so there you are. Um, and then finally, in addition to the church fathers, we can quote ancient liturgies. Um, in the Latin liturgy, we have the hymn, uh, for lauds on Sundays, which was written by St. Ambrose, um, in the fourth century, uh, maybe the early fifth century. And, uh, he, so in this, in this hymn, he refers to Peter as the rock itself of the church, Ipsa Petra Ecclesiae. Um, and this St. Augustine describes, uh, in one of his works called his, uh, Retractaciones, um, where he, he, well, I won't describe it. Anyways, in one of his works, <laughs> um, the, the first <laughs> chapter, number 22, he, um, he, um, mentions that this hymn, which was composed by St. Ambrose is sung in the mouth of the multitude. So it's already widely diffused. It's used everywhere in, mm. in the Western church's liturgy. Um, so that's an important testimony to Peter's primacy. Also, even in the uh, Eastern liturgy, I, I think this was probably the Byzantine liturgy. The book that I took it from just referred to it as the Greek liturgy. Um, it calls St. Peter the foundation of the church and the rock of faith. So in Greek, that's he krepistes ecclesias kai he petra tes pisteos. Um, so it's even in the, the Eastern liturgies, this acknowledgement of St. Peter 
as foundation of the church, the, the rock of faith. Wow. That was fantastic. Father, th- thank you so much. Uh, you've wrapped up everything about the, the primacy of St. Peter into one neat little package. And thanks again for your patience with me with the audio issues. But thank you again so much for putting this all together for us. It was fantastic. It's my pleasure. And thank you for bearing with the technical difficulties. I hope that uh, with our next recording, things will go smoother. But, yeah, uh, no problem. No, it's, it's part of the job. It's all right. Um, and I think we're going to be having you back for another episode. Uh, I don't remember which one it is right now. Well, At this point, I think it's time for you to go get a whiskey. So I'm, uh, absolutely. I'm not worried about the next one <laughs> right too. now. You too. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate- we'll keep this. All, all right. right. God bless. Thank you, Father. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Apologetic Series on the SSPX podcast and on our YouTube page. Please consider subscribing to the YouTube account and the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are found. And please consider leaving a rating or a review on this podcast. This will help to make sure more people can find this podcast and discover the beauty and the truth of traditional Catholicism. Until next time.